Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be learning about the 2019 biopic simply called Harriet. Harriet was written by Gregory Allen Howard and Casey Lemons, the latter of whom also directed the film. Joining us to separate fact from fiction in the movie is Kate Clifford Larson, a historian and author of the book Bound for the Promised Land, Harriet Tubman, Portrait of an American Hero. Dr. Larson was also the historical consultant on the movie. Before we connect with Dr. Larson, though, it's time to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Harriet Tubman's first trip back south was to rescue her brothers. Number two, Harriet Tubman was not known as Moses to the slave catchers like we see in the movie. Number three, after Harriet escaped, her husband, John, remarried a woman named Caroline. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Dr. Larson about the historical accuracy of Harriet. The movie opens in Bucktown, Maryland in the year 1849. We're introduced to Harriet in her mid-20s, although she's called Minty by her husband, John Tubman. We find out later that's short for Araminta Ross Tubman. Can you give a little more historical context around Minty's life up until the point that we see her in the movie? There's so much to her life before we meet her in 1849 in the film. She's 27 years old. She's been, you know, married, obviously. Um, She is the fifth of nine children of Ben and Rit Ross. Her parents were enslaved by different uh, masters. But she was enslaved along with her mother and her siblings by a man named Edward Brodus and his family. And um, when we see her in the film, she and her husband, her parents and her siblings are standing in the yard in front of the porch of the movie set, Edward Brodus home. So uh, you're meeting him and his family at that time as well. But she's been, you know, working hard and living uh, a very difficult life as an enslaved uh, child and woman up until that point. You, you mentioned the the house there. And one of the first things that we see in the movie is there's a man named Reverend Green who's giving a little sermon on the steps of the house. And I want to ask about this because he uses the words from, from the Bible, a, a verse in Colossians, I believe it says something like, you know, slaves honor your earthly masters and everything. Is it true that they actually use the Bible as a means of justifying slavery? Yes, they did. Um, particularly the Southern Methodists and Southern Baptists really began to push that harder and harder in the late 18th century and into the 19th century because of pressure of abolition and uh, the need to remind these intensely spiritual and faithful African-American people that the Bible is telling them that they must obey their masters. And for some, it was, you know, it was hard pill to swallow. And then, of course, they would add that your reward will be in heaven. Wow. Wow. In the movie, John Tubman hires a lawyer to research the last will of Athol Pattison. 
According to that will, Minty's mother, Ritz, was supposed to be freed at the age of 45. Ritt was given to Mr. Brodus as a child, and at the time of the movie in 1849, she's 57. So Minty points out, at least in the movie, she points out that her mom was 46 when her sisters were sold, which was illegal, according to the will. They were all supposed to be free when her mom turned 45. Of course, in the movie, Mr. Brodus doesn't care. He tears up the letter from the lawyer, and that's pretty much that. Was that true? So it's partly true. Well, it was um, Harriet herself who hired the lawyer for $5 to investigate and research this will of an ancestor of Edward Brodus. And indeed, that ancestor, Brodus's great-grandfather, Atho Pattison, had put in his will that Rich should be set free at the age of 45. The movie diverges from this, however. It did not mean that all her children would be free when she turned 45. It meant that they were to be free when they turned 45 as well. But Rit had two children after she turned 45, and they should have been born free, but they were enslaved instead. And then basically just tearing up the letter, would it have just stopped there, or would they have continued to pursue that? So it sort of stopped there. Enslaved people, even if they hired a lawyer, had, you know, slim chance of things going in their favor. Um, However, which they did not cover in the film, is that Edward Brodus, who died quite quickly after that, left his estate in disarray and the other heirs of Atho Pattison filed suit to claim the rights to... It's a complicated story, but it did end up going through the court system and um, tying up Edward's estate for several years. In the movie, once Gideon puts Minty up for sale, she decides to run away. Even though she wants her husband, John, to go with her, or I'm sorry, he wants to go with her. She she knows that he he's a free man, and if he helps her, then he'll lose that freedom. So we see her singing a, a farewell song. Uh, to her mom from the distance, and then she evades John as she makes her escape. From there, she goes to her father, Ben, who is free, and he tells her to go to Reverend Green's church and ask him to pray for her journey. She's kind of conflicted because you mentioned earlier he was the one that was preaching obedience to the slave owners, but she does as she's told, and Reverend Green then gives her directions on how to escape using the Delaware River to a man, a blacksmith named Thomas Garrett. How well did the movie do showing Minty's escape? Well, I think they did a great job imagining what it was like because we have no idea what happened. We know that actually the first person she went to, she escaped from a plantation in Caroline County, and both of her parents were on that plantation. So they really weren't living apart at the time. And there was a Quaker woman that lived nearby that Minty or Harriet Tubman approached, and that woman told her to wait till her husband came home and he would take her to the next stop on the Underground Railroad. We don't know the path that they took. We know she eventually ended up in Philadelphia. And later she became very, very close to um, Thomas Garrett, the Quaker businessman. He was not a blacksmith. He was a businessman. He had a business selling iron in Wilmington, Delaware. So one of the scenes um, during her escape is um, Tubman is chased by Gideon and his gang, um, and they chase her to a bridge over the Choptank River. And the Choptank River is real. It is there on the eastern shore of Maryland. And he approaches her, and she uh, gets up on the bridge and then jumps. 
that did not happen. And that wasn't the Choptank River. They had to film in Virginia. So it's not the same landscape. The Choptank River is a very uh, flat, calm river. And um, there weren't any bridges to speak of that she could have jumped off and, and survived without getting stuck in the mud if she had done that. And Gideon or John or whatever Broda's son didn't chase her. That was all manufactured. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, that was going to lead into my next question because we we do see the the path. Um, there's a, a guy who's driving a cart filled with hay, and she sneaks in there and, and kind of m- makes her way. But then she makes her way to Thomas Garrett's place, and then he helps her to the Pennsylvania border. Then that leads to uh, someone named William Still in the Pennsylvania Anti Slavery Society. So, would we not really have known who helped her along the way? We don't know for sure, but I think that the filmmakers did a great way of of bringing in these characters very quickly into the movie. They only had two hours to tell this huge story. So the the man with the wagon who is dressed sort of like a Quaker, he's very quiet. He doesn't say anything. He knows she's there. She hides and then he, you know, she jumps out at the right time. And so that's that works for me. <laughs> um, so that's sort of true. But when she met Thomas Garrett, we have no idea. And we don't know who brought her to the, the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania state line and when she could step over and be free. We don't know that. But I, I, I like the way they did it. I thought it was great. Okay. I mean, yeah, a lot of movies are going to have to fill in some details. If we don't know, then... Yeah, yeah. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Now, we go back to the movie's timeline. It is William Still from the Pennsylvania Anti-Slaver Society who tells Minty that most ex-slaves like to pick a new name to mark their freedom. And so this is where we find out that uh, her mom, Ritz, her real name is Harriet. And so she wants her mom's name and her husband's name. Harriet Tubman. Is that how she got the name that we know her by now? She gave testimony for a, um, a pension, a Civil War pension um, in the 1890s. And during that testimony, she said that she changed her name to Harriet Tubman when she got married to John Tubman in 1844. Okay. So the concept of the slaves wanting to pick a new name, is that something that would not have happened then? Or is it just not that that was how she got her name? Oh, no, no. It happened um, frequently. And William Still kept a journal. And in that journal, he recorded the enslaved name and then the free name. 
Not everybody changed their name, but but some of them going through that office did. Her brothers all changed their names when they made their way through uh, William Still's office. Okay. And the movie doesn't really explain a lot about William Still's, the anti-slavery society that, that's going on there. Can you give a little more historical context around William Still and the anti-slavery society that he was a part of there? Sure. So Pennsylvania had an anti-slavery society that had been operating for decades and decades. And they had what they called a, a vigilance committee in Philadelphia that helped freedom seekers who came to the city. And the anti-slavery society and the vigilance committee and their supporters raised money to help support these freedom seekers with transportation, food, clothing, medicine, shelter, et cetera, and help them get further north, especially after 1850 when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed and it made it very dangerous for freedom seekers to linger in free cities in the north. So um, he was, um, he became um, a secretary in that office, the Vigilance Committee office in Philadelphia in the late 1840s. And he took on a, a really monumental task and a he was a larger than life figure in a sense that he helped hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people get make their way through Philadelphia and he hid them and protected them through his network of, of supporters. He's, he's huge in the store in the annals of the Underground Railroad. Was his his role kind of a, a unique thing or was there more more than just uh, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia in, in particular? Were there more societies like that out there? There were in most northern states, there were uh, anti-slavery societies and some of the big cities and even some of the smaller cities had vigilance committees that operated the same way. Some of them were more radical and uh, very radical, like the one in Boston was very radical. Um, And there were groups in the Midwest, some of them were very radical too. Uh, They would harass slave catchers. I mean, they went out of their way to complicate things. Philadelphia was the had the largest free black population in the country at the time. So there was a vibrant community there that, that enabled the Underground Railroad Network to work very efficiently and very well. And William Still was a figurehead in that movement. Okay, so Harriet ending up there was more just geographically more convenient to, to go there, not necessarily that that was the, the place to go. Well, it was geographically perfect, but it was the place to go for most freedom seekers coming out of that Chesapeake area to get to, you know, southern Pennsylvania and into Philadelphia, which gave you many, many options. You could hide out in the, the black population and you could find support to move further north. Okay. Now, even though mentioning fur- further north, and we'll, we'll get, to, get to that here in a minute, but in the movie, after Harriet makes it to Philadelphia... She ends up wanting to go back. She feels that something's wrong. You know, she uh, talks, I think she gets word from uh, one of the men going up and down the Delaware River that her husband and her family know that she's safe, but she wants to go back and try to get her husband and her family. So she gets help from someone named uh, Marie Buchanan and gets some fake papers, goes back down south. She partially gets away with it because, as Marie explains in the movie, runaways usually don't go back (laughs) south. So how well did the movie do showing the reasons why Harriet wanted to go back for her family? Well, I feel they nailed it. Casey Lemons was a dream to work with. She really wanted to capture the real Harriet Tubman. 
And the real Harriet Tubman, as wonderful as she was, she didn't just go down south and rescue anybody. She was like every other woman or man whose family was left behind. She loved her family. And I think they show that in the film, the intense love that her parents and her siblings, they all had for each other. And so Casey really made that apparent. And Tubman herself said when she got to Philadelphia, that freedom didn't feel complete because everyone she loved was still in Maryland. And she felt that if she was going to be free, they deserved to be free too. And she was going to do something about it, which is exactly what she did do. But she, Casey Lemons really got that moment. This was Tubman the woman. And of course, we can all, we can relate to that. If, you know, we had the opportunity to just save our family, we're going to do that. Save strangers, maybe not. But family members and friends, people you love, that was it. Did any other slaves that escaped try to do the same sort of thing to go back and save their families as well? There are records of, of people going back to rescue their families. Um, William still notes several of them in his journal. Uh, it didn't happen often, but it did happen. But no one is recorded as returning as many times as Harriet Tubman did. In the movie, one of the times we, we see her go back, she finds out that John took another wife named Caroline, and they're expecting a child together. I, I can't imagine what it must have been like going through her mind to go back trying to rescue her husband, only to find that he's taken another wife. Did that actually happen? And how do we know how it affected Harriet? That did happen. She actually brought him a suit of clothes. She said this, hoping that it would, you know, entice him to move to Philadelphia with her. But he had moved on. He had fallen in love with a free black woman by the name of Caroline. And uh, she was pregnant at the time. We know from documentation in Maryland that that is true. We know that, that Harriet was devastated and deeply wounded by this. She felt betrayed and abandoned. And, um, but she recovered and decided she would just keep doing what she wanted to do and rescue other people. In the script, Casey originally had it that Tubman discovers that Caroline is pregnant and she vomits on the ground. And I thought that was so powerful, but I think they decided that that was just <laughs> too much to put in the film. But, you know, Casey Lemons understood that that betrayal would just make you know, Harriet sick. And I think Cynthia Revo did a great job, you know, her breaking down, but also pulling herself together. I, I think that was a great scene. And I do believe that John Tubman deeply loved Harriet, but, you know, he was a free man. He risked everything. And if he had gone with her, he could have been captured and enslaved. And that would have been awful. What, what sort of timeline was that there that and the movie doesn't really show a lot of different dates to know like when she was freed and and then she came coming back and how much time there for John to find somebody else. So she escaped in the fall of 1849 and she returned, I think, in the fall of 1851. And that's when she discovered the betrayal. Going back to the movie, yep. she is heartbroken after the news from John, but she kind of seems to question her purpose in life for a while there. And then her dad finds her. It was fun and interesting that in the movie, he's still refusing to actually look at her, which had to have been tough as well. But he wants to honestly say that he hasn't seen her if somebody asks. 
But then he tells Harriet that her brothers were about to be sold by Eliza Brodus. And earlier in the movie, we see that um, Eliza and Gideon are struggling for money after Edward died. You had mentioned that a little bit earlier. But it's not just her brothers. There's some other people, uh, including a woman named Phoebe, who has a newborn. She named uh, her newborn after Minty, after she found out that she had escaped. And so we find that Harriet's not just going to rescue her her brothers. I think there's a total of uh, five slaves. Uh, if you include the newborn, that would be six people total to go back through freedom. Is that a pretty accurate way of that first bringing people to, to freedom? So that scene is sort of a conflation of different rescues and... Um and it was not the first one. She rescued her brothers um, at Christmas 1854. And um, so that was after several trips that she had made back and forth rescuing other people. And the baby story, it's sort of a conflation of a brother who left a wife and children behind. She had just given birth to a, a baby uh, that day, Christmas Eve, and they named the baby Harriet, not Minty, but Harriet. And um, But he had to leave his family behind, which was really heartbreaking. And then later in her career of being an Underground Railroad agent, I, one of the last rescue missions she had, she rescued um, a family with two little children and an infant. So it's sort of conflating those stories. And then the crossing the river scene, that was true but it was a different rescue mission with four men. It was not with this group of people. But so that's why I mean it was just a conflation of different rescues. Okay. So, but if, if she rescued her brothers after she had rescued some other people, were those other people still family members or like you were saying earlier, not just rescuing any random people? Who was the people that she had rescued first? The first rescue mission was her niece, Keziah Jolly Boley, and her two little children, James and uh, Araminta, or Minty, who was named after um, Harriet as Minty. So that was the first rescue mission in 1850. Um, she rescued a brother, Moses, in 1851, but that, we don't know what happened to Moses. And, um, and then there were a couple other groups of people that she rescued. We're not clear on who they were, but obviously they were people that she knew and loved. And so it just went on that way. There were just other groups of people, but they were mostly people she knew and, and loved. You mentioned the name Moses, and I wanted to ask you about that because in the movie, we do see Harriet singing a song about Moses, you know, let my people go. And that is how she encourages the slaves to follow her away from the plantation to freedom. We see some uh, posters being hung on trees for a reward for the slave stealer known as Moses. Was it true that Harriet was known as Moses to the slave owners trying to track her down? No. (laughs) (laughs) And they didn't post up notices for a reward to capture Moses or for Harriet Tubman. They had no idea who she was. In fact... It's so ridiculous. I mean, that I, you know, I appreciate how they were trying to just get so much into that film and, and tell a good story. Um, but the truth is the slaveholders on the Eastern Shore by 1857, 58, uh, now Tubman had been doing this for eight years. They were starting to think that it was a white man dressed in blackface as a black woman that was luring people away. I mean, how twisted do they have to be to not really realize that it was a 
it was a black woman that was actually <laughs> leading people away. No, it had to be a white abolitionist man dressed in blackface. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> that's that's crazy. I know. I know. <laughs> But they couldn't do that in the film. That's really a complicated thing to kind of relay in the film. And there was no large reward for her capture. Eliza Brodus posted a reward for Minty's capture along with her two brothers who escaped first in September of 1849. And they stayed away for about three weeks because they were confused about which way to go and who to trust. So they came back. But Eliza Brodus posted a reward to capture them, $100 each. And that was it. There's another group of people that we see in particular. It's uh, Gideon hires two men uh, named Walter and Bigger Long to be slave catchers. And this is the first concept that, w- that we see of the slave catchers in the movie. We do see, I think, uh, Walter sees the group that Harriet is trying to get to freedom across, across the river. And then he lies to Gideon that he lost track of them. So how well did the movie do showing... The attempts of these uh, two black men being slave catchers, trying to apparently you know earn money catching catching the slaves, but then there seems to be some confliction with Walter lying about it and letting them escape. How well did the movie do showing these uh, slave catchers trying to track down Harriet and the group that she was helping escape? So we don't. Um, the most of the slave catchers were white. I'll just say that. But there were black slave catchers. And I know the movie got a lot of flack when this came out and they represented Bigger Long, especially because he was vicious. And Walter, who had this kind of moment where he realized he needed to be on the right side of things. But but they did exist and they were very real. And um, so I have no problem with the way they portrayed it. I think it was very honest and had integrity. And in fact, there's a historian, Rick Bell, who has come out with a a book about, it's called Stolen. And it's about the business of dealing enslaved people and stealing free black people in cities in the north or in the upper south and selling them into slavery or taking them into the deep south and reselling them. And there were African-American men and women that were involved in that trade. So it's a fact and it's true. And the film, I think, was honest about it. I wanted to ask about the Underground Railroad itself, because in the movie, once Harriet makes it back to Philadelphia with these slaves, she goes to William Still, and then he, in turn, takes Harriet to a meeting of what he calls the committee. And these are the organizers and the officers in the Underground Railroad. It's the first time that we, we see them in the movie. William introduces Harriet to everyone else as a conductor on the railroad. According to the movie, a conductor is someone who accompanies slaves to safe houses or stations. And these are stations that are run by station masters. And he says the bravest of conductors steal slaves directly from a plantation right under the overseer's nose. And this is exactly what we see Harriet doing in the movie. Can you give a little more historical context around the Underground Railroad at this point in history when Harriet was first introduced to it? So by the time Harriet Tubman becomes involved in the Underground Railroad, it is a very well-organized network of people in the South and in the North. Um, It had been evolving for centuries, of course. People have been running away since um, enslaved people were brought here to America. But by, you know, the 19th century, it was very well organized. And on the East Coast, it had, um, it was a tremendously well-organized network. It was well-funded. 
and it helped liberate uh, and secure the freedom, permanent freedom for many, many, many people. And the scene in the film is a little, you know, it, it seems a little ridiculous. You know, they got a chalkboard and they're keeping track. And I mean, that, that was pretty funny. But it, there was a vigilance committee and they were very serious about their business and they were determined to make sure that people were going to be free. And um, they used their own financial resources. They found ways to raise money and offer support. And they did meet. And so, you know, I can't quibble with the way it was presented. I think it was just, it was, it was Hollywood, but it was the truth. It was the truth. You mentioned this earlier and in the movie, we do see something called the Fugitive Slave Act get passed. And the way the movie portrays this is basically up until this point, Harriet's been taking people to Philadelphia, to Pennsylvania. But now once this is passed, Slave hunters can now pursue slaves in any state in the Union and kind of obliges law enforcement to turn the slaves over. So now, according to the movie, Pennsylvania is not far enough north. Now they need to go even further into Canada. Can you give a little more historical context around the Fugitive Slave Act and how it affected Harriet's work? So the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in 1850, and it was part of a big compromise in Congress when California was admitted into the Union as a free state. So it it created a quote-unquote imbalance in Congress, so there were more free states represented than in slave states. So Southerners wanted some compensation, and the Fugitive Slave Act was part of that compensation. And it gave, uh, it empowered them to go anywhere in the North and reclaim their enslaved people and bring them back without having to fight for it in court. They just could take the people back. And um, and this is shorthand. And there was money involved, payments to judges to adjudicate them quickly and send them back south. It was a terrible, terrible law. And also, because they didn't have photographs back then, really, these slave catchers could just capture any free person and claim they were a former slave and take them back. And that did happen. So uh, it was uh, it was a very real, very dangerous thing that was happening then. In the film, the timeline is a little off. I mean, it happened in 1850, just months after Tubman fled for the first time herself. Uh, it wasn't years later. And of course, it didn't happen the same time that John Brown was there in Philadelphia, you know, giving his fiery speeches. They Anyway, it, they just had to conflate everything for a good story. It was all true, just kind of off a little. So then would most escaping slaves then try to actually go to Canada instead of staying in Pennsylvania then? Yes, thousands of them fled to Canada. And even um, people who were living in uh, northern, more northern cities and towns like in Boston, et cetera, they fled to Canada, too, because the slave catchers headed right for cities like Boston, Albany, New York, Syracuse, New York. And so these vigilance committees had to create networks to warn freedom seekers that there was a slave catcher in town. And in Boston, they created these committees of men that would practice attacking slave catchers. They'd hear that one was in town, they'd go and they, they would attack them. And they did that like in Niagara Falls and places like that so that they would chase these slave catchers out of town. Well, back in the movie, in, it's in 1858 when Harriet finds out that a fugitive that her dad harbored got caught and talked. So now she's going back south to get her mom and dad. She's leading a group of slaves 
being followed by Gideon and Eliza, uh, along with some other slave owners who are upset at Harriet, or as they call her, Moses. <laughs> um, but here we see Harriet put her own life on the line yet again as she tells Walter to take the slaves north to freedom, and she stays behind to deal with Gideon and Bigger Long. The way the movie shows this happening is that Gideon actually kills Bigger Long when he tries to shoot Harriet. Uh, Gideon was insistent that they take her alive. Then Harriet gets the jump on Gideon, and rather than killing him, though, she proves herself a better person by saying that she was never anyone's property. Gideon never owned her. God did not intend for people to own other people. Then she steals his horse and ride off. How well did the movie do showing these events in 1858? Well, first of all, she rescued her parents in 1857, and her father was in trouble. Um, He was going to be arrested as an Underground Railroad agent, which he was. He was an Underground Railroad agent. So she rescued her parents. The whole thing with Gideon and um, Bigger Long, that didn't happen. We have no evidence of that. And first of all, Gideon is a made-up name. The Broduses didn't have a son named Gideon. Their oldest son, they had, you know, John and James, but there were too many Johns and James in the movie, so they couldn't name another person John, so they (laughs) named him Gideon. So uh, all these things you learn about how they have to deal with historical characters because you can't confuse an audience with too many people with the same name. And so I think the point of it was I, I like the way, to me, the movie is about Harriet Tubman and the other stuff just sort of was a way, a vehicle to show her as a person and her character. And she really, by the time she's rescuing her parents, she is militant. She is determined. She is a soldier for freedom, for sure. So I think that scene really sets up what is going to come, and that's the Civil War. But she, you know, I, I like the way they did that, even though it was totally made up, completely mm-hmm. made up. Well, I'm glad you clarified that about, about Gideon, too. And you're, you're right. It, it had a lot of Johns, then that would have been even more confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, at the very end of the movie, we see some text on the screen that says two years into the Civil War and Harriet Tubman had already become the most famous conductor on the Underground Railroad. She was leading over 70 slaves to freedom. The text continues to tell us that Harriet became a spy for the Union Army. She led 150 black soldiers in the uh, Cumbie River Raid that freed over 750 slaves. And she remains one of the few women in U.S. history to lead an armed expedition. Finally, it tells us that she later remarried and dedicated her life to helping freed slaves, the elderly and women's suffrage. She died surrounded by loved ones on March 10th, 1913, at approximately 91 years of age. And according to the movie, her last words were, I go to prepare a place for you. Is that all true? It's all true. It's all true. And in fact, the U.S. Army Military Intelligence Corps Hall of Fame has just inducted Tubman into their Hall of Fame as a spy. And uh, the ceremony will be in June at Fort Huachuca in Arizona. They recognize that her military service, which the Army would not recognize back when she was alive, um, they're recognizing now her great leadership and her skill as a spy and a scout. Were there others that were spies that or escaped slaves that the army used as, as spies during the war? 
Yes, there were. As a matter of fact, there were eight male scouts that worked with Tubman down in the Hilton Head district. And um, many of them were freedom seekers themselves that had fled from nearby plantations. And they reported intelligence to her or she went out in the field with them and and, um, investigated. And then she brought the intelligence back to the union officers who admired her greatly. They were so respectful and elevated her importance at that time. And so, yeah, it's all true. One of the characters in the movie I wanted to ask you about, she ha- has a, a major impact, at least according to the movie, on, on Harriet's life, and that is Marie Buchanan. Um, unfortunately, in the movie, she gets killed by Gideon and Bigger Long. Was she based on a real person? She is based on a, a real person. Um, in the script, it was a boarding house owner, a woman. and um, But I, I knew that the real woman's name was Sarah Buchanan. And so they they wanted the name Marie or Casey wanted the name Marie or the original script had Marie. So they called her Marie Buchanan. Sarah was not murdered, but she did run a boarding house and um, she had her husband and, and family members were seamen and traders. So she was in she was kind of connected into this black maritime network. And as a boarding house owner, she had room to shelter freedom seekers like Harriet Tubman. Now, being involved in the process of of making the movie, do you have a favorite story from that? It was the most amazing experience working with um, Casey Lemons in particular. Um, I think my favorite part of the whole thing, there wasn't one particular experience. I think it was just Casey got Tubman she got her. She got the love of Tubman's family. And they showed that on screen. I love the hugs that they all give each other. They were just so authentic. And um, Cynthia Rivo's physicality, she was so strong and powerful. That was Tubman. And Cynthia is five feet tall, just like Tubman. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just, there were so many parts of this that were so authentic for me. And I think Casey Lemons, really brought it to that film she uh, the the script needed a lot of work when she got it and and i think she nailed it was there anything from history that didn't make it into the movie that you wish had been in there oh my gosh they could make <laughs> we need a series are you kidding <laughs> well you're talking about all that being true like uh, that text at the end of the movie I was like okay this is going to be the sequel like they need to tell all that too and all the before, you know, there's so much about her life that, you know, I think still needs to be treated on film. And hopefully it will be in the future. Um, I don't know if, if your uh, listeners or if you saw the latest, latest report that they uncovered what they believe to be Ben Ross's cabin site in Dorchester County that he lived in probably in the late 1820s to about 1846. So it, that is thrilling and exciting because once they finish that work, we'll be able to start interpretation of Tubman's life at that time and the community that lived there that helped raise her and protect her and educate her and, and helped her become the woman that she ultimately became. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about Harriet. I know I've mentioned you worked as a historical consultant on the film, but you've also got a great book that I'm sure the filmmakers referred to a lot. It's called Bound for the Promised Land, Harriet Tubman, Portrait of an American Hero. 
So for someone listening to this who wants to learn more about the true story, can you share a bit about your book and where they can learn more about your work? Um, so you can find the book um, on Amazon uh, under my name, Kate Clifford Larson, or you know, there's a uh, there are two national parks in Tubman's honor now. One in Auburn, New York, where she spent the last 50 years of her life in her own home, and then there's a national park in Dorchester County, as well as a state park visitor center that has tremendous exhibits about Harriet Tubman. And there is a byway that uh, 125 mile byway that goes through Dorchester and Caroline County, and also. Um, into Delaware, into Philadelphia, that you can follow basically the routes and of Harriet Tubman and learn about her life as a child, a young adult, and as a, a liberator. Thank you again so much for your time, Kate. Thank you. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Dr. Kate Clifford Larson once again for taking the time to help us separate fact from fiction in 2019's Harriet. If you want to learn even more about the real Harriet Tubman, pick up a copy of Dr. Larson's excellent book called Bound for the Promised Land, Harriet Tubman, Portrait of an American Hero. You can find a link to that book and more of Dr. Larson's work in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Harriet Tubman's first trip back south was to rescue her brothers. Number two, Harriet Tubman was not known as Moses to the slave catchers like we see in the movie. Number three, after Harriet escaped, her husband John remarried a woman named Caroline. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's count it backward and start with number three. After Harriet escaped, her husband, John, remarried a woman named Caroline. That is true. As we learned from Dr. Larson, Harriet escaped in the fall of 1849, and she was devastated when she returned a couple years later and found out that John had moved on and married a woman named Caroline. That brings us to number two. Harriet Tubman was not known as Moses to the slave catchers like we see in the movie. That is also true. And by that being true, of course, what I mean is that Harriet Tubman was not known as Moses to the slave catchers. In fact, as Dr. Larson pointed out, slave catchers didn't even have any idea who she was at all. That means number three is the lie. Harriet Tubman's first trip back south was to rescue her brothers. The movie had to change the timeline around a little bit, but Dr. Larson clarified the timeline for us. Harriet escaped in the fall of 1849, and her first rescue was in 1850. She didn't rescue her brothers until a few years later in 1854. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. My hope in sharing this information is to go beyond just my podcast, but hopefully you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. Of course, I only have these stats for my own show. So with that said, today's episode took a total of 41 hours to create. As I always do, I want to make it clear that is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 41 hours does not include my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about. It also does not include the time it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, uh, social media, the email newsletter, and all those other little things outside creating a single podcast episode that are still required to make a show overall. 
All those things take time to set up and maintain and cost money, and that goes beyond the things that are associated with this one episode, but they are things that are required because if I didn't do those things, there wouldn't be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find out more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But they're not the only ones helping to keep the show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to the producer's feed, which, as of this recording, has over 70 exclusive minisodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes like this one. You can find out how to get access to all of that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.